the, uh, the, the business about the GDP statistics remind, in this speech reminds me of a, a debate in the 1960s in America over uh, the Soviet Union statistics. And on one side, you had Warren Nutter at the University of Virginia, a former CIA employee, using CIA statistics on Soviet growth, arguing with uh, left-wing economists like Paul Samuelson, who used the Soviet Union's own statistics <laughs> on their growth. And that was the domain of the debate over, <laughs> over economic growth. That's, that's why Samuelson had these uh, ridiculous graphs in his textbooks claiming that the Soviet Union's growth would overtake uh, the U.S. Uh, by 1980. Something like that. The same statistics they use in India, uh, I guess. Uh, well, my, my paper um, uh, it could be entitled The Culture of Violence in the American West, The Missing Chapter. Uh, I, I start out by looking at uh, some research that was done by uh, Terry Anderson and P.J. Hill th 30 years ago. Uh, in the Journal of Libertarian Studies, where they took uh, a close look at uh, the American frontier, the American West, be before there was any state in the American frontier. And, of course, the popular culture uh, has informed the whole world that uh, everyone was shooting each other. Uh, you know, you could go out there. If you were to drop, uh, be dropped by helicopter in anywhere west of, the, of, the, of Ohio uh, in the... You know, in the 19th century, you would see every single people, every single person had a handgun and was shooting it in all directions at, at, at all the other people with handguns. That's, that's your typical Western movie, whether they're made by Clint Eastwood or, or, or anybody else. And, and of course, the history profession has has just assumed that the history profession has written many books about the American West, uh, but it turns out to be a, a complete myth. And uh, uh, there's a one one uh, historian named Eugene Holland, one of the few historians who wrote a book on uh, violence on the American frontier. And he says this, the, the Western frontier was a far more civilized, more peaceful and safer place than American society today. And uh, that's true. And Anderson and Hill themselves said that while the West is perceived as a great place of great chaos with little respect for property or life, uh, our research indicates that this was not the case. Property rights were protected and civil order prevailed. Private agencies provided the, ne the necessary basis for an orderly society in which property was protected and conflicts uh, were resolved. And I'm going to explain that briefly. Uh, so in other words, the American frontier was stateless, but it was not lawless, is what this research says. And uh, the, But the main, the main part of my article, which, uh, by the way, is going to be published in the Independent Review in the fall issue, fall 2010, uh, the main thrust of it is that there was a culture of violence in the American West, uh, it, but it wasn't the civil society. It was the U.S. government's war on the Plains Indians. And that's that's the bulk of my my article. Now, now, how was it that the civil society was relatively peaceful? Uh, you know, if you're interested in this, read the Anderson and Hill article. I have about a dozen copies of my uh, paper here. If anybody wants to grab a hard copy, uh, but there were land clubs when people headed west from the east coast. They formed land clubs that adopted their own constitutions, uh, and they had law enforcement, their own private law enforcement. The wagon trains adopted their own constitutions also, and they had very detailed judicial systems. Mining camps, some of my favorite uh, Western movies are about the drunken antics of the guys in the mining camps, uh, and, you know, uh, and, and as far as that goes. Uh, but they were, these were movies, keep in mind. This is Hollywood, Hollywood portrayal. But the mining camps, if you look into this, there's an economist named John Umbeck, 
he discovered this, that the, the miners began forming contracts with one another to restrain their own behavior. He said, as long as a miner abided by the rules, the other miners would defend his rights under community contract. If he did not abide by the agreed upon rules, his claim would be considered to be open to any claim jumpers. So they policed themselves, and they did a pretty good job of it. That's why Anderson and Hill concluded that uh, it was a relatively peaceful place. Uh, when government bureaucrats failed to uh, police cattle rustling, cattlemen's associations did it themselves. They hired, they hired guys who were very good riflemen, for example. And just the mere fact that you had uh, private snipers standing around guarding your herd uh, was enough. They were brandishing their, their, uh, their Winchesters. Uh, was enough to keep the the cattle rustling uh, uh, under control, uh, and so uh, and these people, these these sort of uh, vigilantes, if you will, uh, they did not become one big giant monopoly crime syndicate as some people have claimed would happen under private uh, private enforcement of crime, and so uh, the Wild West was not very wild at all. You know, there were there was violence. You know, the, all human societies have conflicts and violence. But relatively speaking, uh, it was certainly much more peaceful than your typical American city. Uh, where I live in Baltimore, uh, uh, the number one statistic is that there are over 300 murders a year, and there are also over 300 pit bull attacks on humans every year in, in the city of Baltimore. So compared to that, the wild, wild west was uh, nirvana. And so... <laughs> But the real, the real cause of the violence, and there was a culture of violence. If there's anything to the idea that there was this culture of violence in America that, that sort of has uh, uh, pervasive, pervaded American society and affects society today, it was the military culture that created it. Uh, I quote Jennifer Roback um, in an article on this topic about uh, the relationship between whites and Indians in the 19th century. And she said, Europeans generally acknowledge that the Indians retained possessory rights to their lands. More importantly, the English recognized the advantage of being on friendly terms with the Indians. Trade with the Indians, especially the fur trade, was profitable, but war was costly. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you think about it, you know, trade versus war, uh, which, which way will we both prosper? We being the white European settlers and the Indians. Uh, well, the impression you get from the popular culture is that war is the way to do it, but that's not true. Uh, even Thomas Jefferson himself found that during his time, uh, negotiation had been the predominant means of acquiring land from the Indians. And uh, by the 20th century, about $800 million had been paid for Indian lands. And uh, uh, Terry Anderson and Fred McChesney uh, had an article in the, Wall, in the, uh, the uh, Journal of Law and Economics on, on this issue about Indian-white relations. And they point out that the existence of a standing army uh, changes the calculus here of whether uh, you know, trade versus raid is the way to acquire property. The existence of it, because essentially it socializes the cost of stealing property from the Indians rather than uh, doing business with them and negotiating with them. Uh, for example, when the transcontinental railroads were built, you had James J. Hill, the private entrepreneur who didn't accept government subsidies, he, uh, he paid for rights of way across Indian lands with livestock, uh, money, whatever they could trade for, whereas the government subsidized railroads would just call in the U.S. Army and have them kill everybody uh, and, and take their land. Then they would build the railroad tracks. Uh, so it certainly does make a difference. Anderson and McChesney quote Adam Smith on this point about a standing army. And Adam Smith said, uh, quote, in a militia, the character of the laborer, artificer, 
artificer or tradesman predominates over that of the soldier. But in a standing army, that of the soldier predominates over every other character. And then Anderson and McChesney go on to say, a standing army creates a class of professional soldiers whose personal welfare increases with warfare, even if fighting is a negative sum act for the population as a whole. Uh, but they do not uh, address the question, Anderson and McChesney, uh, of why there was a standing army in the American West all of a sudden. And I, I addressed this in my paper. And the reason there was a standing army all of a sudden uh, uh, in, in the years uh, right after the, the, uh, the, the so-called Civil War was that uh, the U.S. government uh, was big into uh, subsidizing the building of the transcontinental railroads. And uh, they wanted the standing army out there to essentially... Uh, once and for all, take all the land from the Indians and, and, and essentially exterminate the Plains Indians. Uh, it was all about the railroads. Uh, um, three months after the Civil War ended, uh, I'm in polite company here, so I won't call it the war to prevent Southern independence like I always do. Most people call it the Civil War. Three months after it was over, uh, Sherman was put in charge of the military district of Missouri. Think about that. I, I, what, what did the Lincoln regime do? They, they turned the sovereign states into military districts. The whole country was, was yeah, Virginia was military district number one, I think. Uh, the land of Thomas Jefferson. But uh, but anyway, he was in charge of all the land west of the Mississippi uh, and given the job of uh, exterminating the Indians and making way for the, for the railroads. Here's what Sherman himself said in his memoirs. Uh, he said, as soon as the war ended, he said, quote, my thoughts and feelings at once reverted to the construction of the Great Pacific Railway. I put myself in communication with the parties engaged in the work visiting them in person and assured them that I would afford them all possible assistance and encouragements. We are not going to let a few thieving, ragged Indians check and stop the progress of the railroads. That's pretty explicit. Uh, Murray Rothbard wrote about this even during the war. He wrote how the, the chief engineer of the Transcontinental Railroad was a man named Grenville Dodge, who uh, Murray wrote, he, quote, helped swing the Iowa del delegation to Lincoln at the 1860 Republican National Convention. And in return for that, in, uh, early in the Civil War, I'm still quoting Murray Rothbard, Lincoln appointed Dodge to Army General. Dodge's task was to clear the Indians from the designated path of the country's first heavily subsidized, federally chartered transcontinental railroad, the Union Pacific. In this way, conscripted Union troops and hapless taxpayers were coerced into socializing the cost of constructing and operating the Union Pacific, end quote. And that just continued after the war for 25 years, uh, this policy. Uh, after the war was over, Grenville Dodge proposed making slaves of the Plains Indians and forcing them to, in his words, do the grading on the railroad beds with the army furnishing a guard to make the Indians work and to keep them from running away, end quote. So in other words, Union Army veterans were to be the new overseers of this new class of slaves. But the, uh, the U.S. government decided they would not make slaves of the Indians. They would kill them instead. Uh, so they, uh, that would be the more, the more efficient uh, way of doing it. Uh, uh, Grant uh, made Sherman the commanding general, and then uh, uh, Sherman, in turn, handed over the reins to Sheridan, General Sheridan. And uh, one of Sherman's biographers, Michael Fellman, uh, calls Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan the great triumvirate of the Union Civil War effort, uh, who he says, quote, formulated and enacted military Indian policy until reaching by the 1880s what Sherman sometimes referred to as in, in Sherman's words, the final solution to the Indian problem. 
That's kind of creepy, isn't it? Uh, and Fellman, the Sherman biographer, he said, these men applied their shared ruthlessness born of their Civil War experiences against a people all three despised. Sherman's overall policy was never accommodation and compromise, but vigorous war against the Indians. They were less than human and savage race. And then there's a list of all, if you look, if you look into this literature, all the old uh, officers, the Civil War officers from the Union side were involved in this. Pope, Howard, Miles, Canby, Ord, Terry, Custer, Benjamin Garrison, uh, Winfield, Scott, Hancock. They were all involved. And uh, Marz- uh, uh, another biographer of Sherman named Marzalek said this about Sherman. He said that Sherman, quote, viewed the Indians as he reviewed recalcitrant Southerners during the war and newly freed people after resistors to the legitimate forces of an ordered society, end quote. And I argue in the, in the paper that uh, these people were not uh, resistors to order in society. They were resistors to being ordered around by politicians in Washington, D.C. Eventually, that's what they were resisting. Uh, and if you look into the literature on the Indian Wars, and I quote uh, a lot of it, some of, the, some of the most widely cited or famous books uh, about it in my paper, it's uh, it's really sickening. When when uh, Bob Higgs accepted this paper for publication, he says it turns my stomach, but I'll publish it anyway. When I was just reading reading about what happened uh, with the Indian Wars, and to give you an idea of what happened, um, I'll read you some, uh, maybe a few more uh, lovely comments by General Sherman uh, here first. Yeah, Sherman, um, uh, he said this. Uh, about the Indians. He says, the Indians give a fair illustration of the fate of the Negroes if they are released from the control of the whites. That was Sherman. So the the the, the Indians, like the ex-slaves, had to be controlled by the whites or they'll, they'll run wild somehow. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, Sherman also believed that the intermarriage of whites and Indians would be a disaster. He said this he's, about uh, about Mexico. He said, uh, and I'm quoting Sherman, the blending of races had produced general equality, which led inevitably to Mexican anarchy. And we can't have that, can't have anarchy. So this really was a, a racial cleansing uh, uh, in the words of Sherman, if you look at all the rhetoric here. And in fact, uh, I quote Michael Fellman, uh, the biographer of Sherman, saying, saying, using that word, he called this a racial cleansing of the land. Uh, Sherman himself used the word extermination over and over again. He and Sheridan are famous for coining the phrase, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And uh, the way they prosecuted the war was orders were given uh, to kill everybody. Uh, quoting Fellman again, Sheridan, uh, Sherman gave Sheridan prior authorization to slaughter as many women and children as well as men that Sheridan or his subordinates felt was necessary when they attacked Indian villages. There were overall over a thousand attacks on Indian villages, and these were attacks with artillery and and infantry troops on Indian villages, uh, which for many years were armed mostly with bows and arrows uh, and and old uh, Civil War era rifles when they had rifles. And they also waged a war of extermination on the buffalo. Well, the buffalo... Buffalo hides at one point could be sold uh, back back east for three dollars and fifty cents, and so hunters had the uh, the incentive to go out there and just shoot as many as they could in a day, and just do it day after day after day, and that led to the extermination of the buffaloes. But this was also government policy; they 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 consciously wanted to uh, kill off all the buffaloes because the buffaloes were a main source of food, 
uh, shelter, clothing. The Indians even made fish hooks out of the bones and, and, and uh, bowstrings out of the sinews of buffalo. They used every part of the buffalo. It was their lifeblood. Uh, and one of the very, one of the first, uh, uh, incidents in this uh, campaign of extermination, as General Sherman called it over and over again, was called the Sand Creek Massacre uh, that happened in eastern Colorado on a creek named Sand Creek. And there were a, a, there was a, a large group of Cheyenne and Arapaho Indians on a village there. And the U.S. government, the U.S. military had told them, if you fly the U.S. flag over your teepees, uh, we will know you are friendly and we will leave you alone. So they knew who they were. They were friendly Indians. Uh, and they had sort of made a treaty. Will you leave us alone? We'll leave you alone. And so these were among the, you know, the top Indians in the, the Plains Indians who wanted to maintain peaceful relations. They wanted to live their life, shoot their buffalo, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, be Indians. Uh, but there was another Civil War luminary, as he's called, a Colonel John Shivington, who had other plans. He wanted fame and glory for himself, apparently. So he gave orders to his men, to uh, uh, 700 soldiers. He said this, quote, I want you to kill and scalp all of them, big and little. Nits make lice. And so uh, if you and I, one of the books that I cite here is by an author named Marshall, who was the chief historian of the European theater of the uh, World War II, who wrote 30 books on uh, American military history. So this guy is quite the expert on American military history. And uh, and about Chivington's raid on this Arapaho village, he said um, his his troops, quote, began a full day given over to bloodlust, orgiastic mutilation, rapine, and destruction, with Chivington looking on and approving. Upon returning to his fort, Shivington and his raiders demonstrated around Denver, waving their trophies more than 100 drying scalps. They were acclaimed as conquering heroes, which is what they sought mainly, end quote. Uh, and I also quote a newspaper that was associated with the Republican Party that wrote about this. And they said this, Colorado soldiers have once again covered themselves with glory after this. There's a famous book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D. Brown, the, American, the historian of the American West. And he writes about the, the Chivington raid on this village. And he says this, quote, when the troops came up to the squaws, the squaws ran out and showed their persons to let the soldiers know they were squaws. They begged for mercy, but the soldiers shot them all. There seemed to be indiscriminate slaughter of men, women, and children. The squaws offered no resistance. Everyone was scalped. Uh, and so... Uh, I have have more sort of blood-curdling stories like this in there that's in the literature. There are many, many books about this. Uh, The orders that uh, Sheridan gave to Custer to kill everybody indiscriminately, Marshall, the military historian, the man who wrote 30 books on American military history, says these were, quote, the most brutal orders ever published to American troops. And that's a very powerful statement from a man who wrote 30 books on American military history. Custer was kind of, uh, he was just as creepy as Sherman on this. He, when they were mass murdering women and children, he brought a band along with them to play an Irish jig called Gary Owens. And why did he do this? Well, uh, Marshall says, i quote again, this was Custer's way of gentling war. It made killing more rhythmic. So he'd strike up the band, play this Irish jig, and start firing on these people. All, overall, the historians think that about 45,000 Indians were, were killed during the Plains Wars, roughly from 1865 to 1890. 
Uh, in Sherman's memoirs, the year before he died in 1890, he wrote to his son, his biggest regret was that his armies did not kill off every last Indian in, Nor in North America. And it, it's telling that uh, the, the Canadians built the Transcontinental Railroad, but they did not decide they needed to exterminate the Indians in Canada. And every time the Indians were cornered by the U.S. Army, they would go to Canada. That's where they would hide out. Uh, and so this, the culture of violence in the American West, uh, this is the source of it. It's the Indian Wars. And what is this culture like? Well, Paul Fussell, the old military veteran and, and writer, said, the culture of war is not like the culture of ordinary peacetime life. It is a culture dominated by fear, blood, and sadism, by irrational actions and preposterous results. It has more relation to science fiction or to absurdist theater than to actual life. And I compare that to what von Mises says in Human Action about uh, civil society versus the division of labor versus war. He said, what distinguishes man from animals is the insight into the advantages that can be derived from cooperation under the division of labor. Man curbs his innate instinct of aggression in order to cooperate with other human beings. Well, that was the civil society of the West that I talked about at the beginning of this talk that Anderson and Hill documented. The more he wants to improve his material well-being, the more he must expand the system of the division of labor. Concomitantly, he must more and more restrict the sphere in which he resorts to military action. That's just the opposite. Uh, and so uh, the final thing I'll say is that it, it's untrue that uh, whites waged war against the Indians. It was really essentially the Republican Party that did all this. It wasn't even a lot of Democrats in Congress. The Republican Party monopolized American politics from the Civil War <coughs> years until Woodrow Wilson became president in, in 1912, essentially, uh, with a few exceptions. And so that's that's who was responsible for this. For the, and one bad influence, uh, the, you know, one bad precedent, and many bad precedents you can see, is that this whole idea of uh, uh, the government declaring people to be subhuman as a way of uh, uh, justifying, quote, justifying uh, extermination like this. Uh, listen to what Teddy Roosevelt said about the Filipinos. He called them, quote, savages, half-breeds, a wild and ignorant people. And this was in uh, 1898 when uh, the U.S. government was uh, uh, commencing its, pol its uh, policy of killing off 200,000 Filipinos because they resisted. Uh, you know, the American government helped them get rid of the Spanish Empire, but then they uh, put in place the American Empire. And the Filipinos didn't like that, so we killed 200,000 of them. And uh, But then a president of the United States had to make it a point to call them uh, wild beasts and an ignorant people, which is exactly what Sherman and the rest called the Indians, the Plains Indians at the time. But, uh, you, know, uh, the, uh, you know, when I lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I lived near a place called Ross's Landing. John Ross was a white man who was the, uh, the head of the Cherokee Nation at a time down there. And, and the Cherokees were very civilized people. Uh, but, but we had this campaign uh, by the government to, uh, to, to portray them as wild beasts uh, somehow. But uh, who's the wild beast? The people like Custer who would mass murder and scalp hundreds of women and children, uh, or, or the, the Plains Indians who wanted to hunt buffalo and fish and, and live uh, their lives on the plains. And so that's, uh, that's why I said this uh, paper uh, turned Bob Higgs's stomach, but he's going to publish it anyway. Yeah, that's, that's my new thing, stomach turning. It's almost lunchtime. We do have a few minutes for questions. We'll see if we get some new, new faces. 
You mentioned that the Canadian government didn't have the same military campaign against the Indian Native Tibetan uh, area of continent. I'm just curious, I don't I can't think of calls specific, but I've heard other similar stories where the Canadian government just wasn't as cruel or militaristic um, throughout its history. And they were essentially settled by similar people, British immigrants. So do you uh, know what the difference is in the culture hmm. that created such differences between the uh, I haven't studied Canada. I know there's a, there's a great book, if you're interested in this general topic, it's called Albion's Seed by David Hackett Fisher. It's about the different uh, ethnic groups from the British Isles who ended up in America. But I don't know, uh, I can't recall if he talks about the Canadian immigrants that much. But I, I, this behavior is the behavior of the New England Yankees. Uh, go online and look up an article called The Yankee Problem in America by Clyde Wilson. And this was a group of people who, uh, you know, the sort of the sons and daughters of the Puritans who believed that they were God's chosen people and that as such uh, they, had, they had the right to do anything in their power to force their ways on every, anybody else, including Southerners, uh, Indians, whoever. And it was, and that, that group of people, the Yankees spread, there was a Yankee belt that went from New England across, uh, northern Pennsylvania and Ohio and to the upper Midwest. Not all Northerners were Yankees, but this, the Yankees was, was an ideology. Clint, uh, uh, Clyde Wilson says that Hillary Clinton is the museum specimen quality of a Yankee, for example, in, 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 today, in today's, in today's world. And so, uh, and so these these are the people who always wanted empire. Uh, that's why Thomas Jefferson uh, loathed loathed and hated them, because he knew empire just meant endless blood and treasure being thrown away for the for the greater glory of the people running the empire. And they had just fought a revolution against an empire, the British Empire, uh, you know, in the, at the time of the of the founding. But uh, the Yankees uh, of that day were Alexander Hamilton and his crowd. They. And so I think I think that's that's where these people come from, and uh, Canada doesn't seem to have been inflicted by that disease uh, of that particular clique that essentially captured the American government in 1865, and and has monopolized it ever really ever since. Oh yeah, there's much more I can do. I can do about this. I'm working on a, on a book uh, entitled "A Treasury of Virtue" with a big question mark. Uh, Robert Penn Warren said the U.S. government had a treasury of virtue after the Civil War, and the, the, what, what they did with all that virtue is, uh, to the Indians is one chapter. And then uh, Reconstruction and the, the railroad scandals are other chapters of that. So, yeah, you can say a lot about that. But, uh, yeah, we've been bombarded with the, the, the stories Americans have about the heroic U.S. Army, and even the Buffalo soldiers are made out to be great heroes, the ex-slaves who were recruited to mass murder the Indian women and children along with Custer and his troops, uh, which is, uh, you know, an abomination as far as I'm concerned. Shame on them. But, you know, they have statues of the Buffalo soldiers all over the place now, and uh, it's supposed to be a great thing, but they were corralled into becoming murderers by the U.S. government 
Uh, you know, the, the real heroes among the ex-slaves are the ones who became farmers and eventually moved into industry and business. Bob Higgs himself has written about this. Uh, this, this the real heroes are not the Buffalo soldiers. But I agree with that. But there is a literature. There's literature. The, the article by Jenny Roback that I quoted is all about that. The article by McChesney and Anderson in the Journal of Law and Economics is, is, is a very good article about uh, trade or raid, the economics of uh, peaceful relations uh, versus... Uh, war and 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 he, they also address various things that will will tip the calculus from trade to raid, but uh, much more can be done. I agree about that. Yeah, Murray, one of Murray Rothbard's articles uh, talks about that uh, on the progressives of how they were a lot of them were pietists uh, and they believed that uh, they wanted to create some sort of kingdom of God on earth, starting with America. But then when you get to the World War One era, era, they thought, well, wouldn't it be good if we could also uh, create uh, a kingdom of God on earth everywhere. And, and, uh, and Woodrow Wilson, that's what Woodrow Wilson thought he was up to, apparently. But yeah, I see it as the same crowd. There's a book called The Metaphysical Club that it talks about the uh, many of the progressives of that era and their link to Lincoln and, and, and the Yankees and the philosophy behind the, the, the centralizers uh, uh, like, like Abraham Lincoln. Many of them were literally in Lincoln's army by the time you get to the late 19th century. Uh, they were they become intellectuals. We have time for just one more. Um, trying to find someone who hasn't asked a question yet. Is it not um this perhaps not significant that Canada only got its independence from Britain in eighteen sixty nine? Uh well yeah that certainly makes it uh different, but uh the Indian these Indian wars uh went on until about around eighteen ninety. There were still a few small skirmishes past uh, eighteen ninety. And uh, James J. Hill didn't build his railroads till the uh, his railroad till the 1870s, and uh, I'm not sure the exact date of the Canadian transcontinental, but it was around the same era, as far as that goes. And uh, and of course, uh, Queen Victoria would not have tolerated this sort of behavior, I don't think. And maybe that's uh, uh, one reason for the why they had Queen Victoria. We had these sons of Abraham Lincoln ruling our our empire, and so that 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 certainly made a difference. Thanks to all three of our presenters.